Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. I've been having a diverse set of conversations about racial healing, peacemaking, social justice and activism, and theological education. Common to all of these conversations has been the issue of the legacy of colonial imperialism and white male supremacy. That legacy is broad and deep. Tragically, the church has been a key partner in developing, promoting, and supporting that legacy. The consequence for today's church and for the Christian witness is a needed reckoning and call to accountability. For the church's witness to have any relevance and significance, the church must acknowledge this legacy and the evil of its intent and manifestations, and the church must change. Repent is the best word. But that change must take concrete form in multiple ways throughout the life and ministry of the church. One of the crucial places change must occur is in the church's worship. This episode is the first of two parts in which my guests help us understand and guide us in the process of decolonizing worship, especially concerning the church's congregational song. I will give fuller biographical information about my guests in this episode's blog spot on my website, but as a start, my guests today are Brian Hain, Becca Whitla, and Marcel Storenagel Silva. If you have been a listener to this podcast, you've already been introduced to Brian. Brian is the director of the Center for Congregational Song, which is a part of the Hymn Society. Becca is professor of pastoral studies at St. Andrew's College in Saskatoon, Canada, where she teaches worship, preaching, and Christian education. And Marcel is assistant professor of church music and director of the Master of Sacred Music program at Southern Methodist University's Perkins School of Theology. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, Brian, welcome back. Uh, thank you for being here with me, and and thank you so much for putting this together for us. Yeah, no and, problem. And, uh, Becca and Marcel, uh, it's a delight and an honor to meet you. Thank you for being on the show. Great to be here. Uh, so let's let's start with, uh, I guess, a definition first that'll set the context for our, the rest of our conversation. Uh, you all use the word coloniality um, as a, and so let's let's talk about how you all each understand that. I don't know which one of us wants to go first. I, I can I can jump in. For me, it, it has a really specific meaning. There's there's kind of a difference between colonialism and coloniality and colonialism kind of describes the forces that were at play when European countries colonized uh, the Americas and, and other parts of the world and coloniality describes the ongoing impact of that. So the sort of structures and uh, residual effects of colonialism, that's the way I understand it. And I, I, when I use that term, I, I um, borrow from and appreciate the way Latin American um, scholars, a group called the um, uh, Modernity Coloniality Group, uh, use it, and their 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 
decolonial thinkers from Latin America kind of wrestle with that thinking specifically about the Americas in the way that they talk about it. I don't know about the rest of you. Yeah, I mean, those are, that's, that's it. The, the, the way that I try to describe it to students is that that difference between colonialism um, as, as an ongoing phenomenon, right? So one, it's a phenomenon. It's, it's something that happens when you have a tilted power differential between, you know, people or groups of people or countries or whatever it is uh, in which uh, abundance, privilege, uh, they kind of tilt to one side in detriment of the other. So as, as a phenomenon, you can apply that lens to a series of relationships, in our case, uh, relation, relations within the church music world. But, but the opposite of that, or what we would call, you know, sometimes you hear post-colonial or sometimes you hear decolonial, which uh, and, and then you would might you might define post-colonial as an attempt to move past or move beyond and uh, that that phenomenon. Right. Or, and, and therefore, write write it or correct the, the relationship and, and decolonial as an active. And that's this is the second part of my definition is uh, it's a, a phenomenon and a stance. So, you know, when we say decolonialize or decolonial perspective, uh, when I use it, then I'm talking, I'm, I'm almost admitting to a certain stance, a posture as an academic and as a practicing church musician in terms of the way I actively choose material, curate it, interact with people, dialogue, um, and, you know, do all these other things that, that we do. I'm, I'm going to jump in again to say that I, I really appreciate the way it, uh, your use of the word stance, because I think that's really important. I think especially around the language of decolonizing, um, it's an it's an active stance, and rather than a sort of just an analysis that's abstract, it has to do with uh, really looking at people's lives and what affects them. And I think it's also specific. Um, it brings more uh, a more specific lens to the to the to the question, and it gets lived out differently in different contexts. Like in my context in Canada, um, decolonizing, especially lately, really has a lot to do with uh, the the history of Europeans coming to Canada and relations with Indigenous peoples here. Um, and then I know like in South Africa, it has a different meaning. And, and in Latin America, it has a, there's, they're all connected and they're connected to the same history of imperialism and colonialism, but they're also distinct and got lived out differently in each different place. Brian? Uh, most of what I know about this topic has has been learned from, I mean, largely Becca and Marcel and, and their colleagues who are doing this work and are really deep into it. And, um, and, and which is why I, I thought it'd be great to have them talk about this, not me. Um, I'm certainly not an expert. I am on the journey of learning. And, um, but I might have some things to share about those learnings and where I am and, and how it's been helpful. Um, but I have no reason to contribute to the definitions of these words above and beyond what Marcel and Becca have shared. Okay. Well, why don't you each then kind of uh, give us a little bit of your own history, a little bit of your own journey into uh, sacred music. And, uh, but especially as that has been shaped 
by colonialism and this legacy. Becca, you wanna, you wanna go ahead, keep the, the pattern going? Sure. Um, I guess for me, my, my journey into sacred music was, uh, has always been connected to a commitment to community music. So I'm a person who's had, and I think this is true for so many church musicians, one foot inside the church and one foot outside. Um, and I, you know, I had a pretty conventional um, and European or Eurocentric uh, training in, in classical music, playing the piano. Um, but I, I came from a church community that loved singing, that really valued the community's voice. And I also went with my parents to sort of um, sing-alongs that sang protest music because I grew up in a family that was committed to social activism and social justice. So but those things mixed together for me. And I, I eventually, by kind of just a, stumbling along a pathway, found myself working in a church music context and also leading a community women's choir and eventually working in the trade union movement with, with music as well. And I think those experiences are in community are what started to take me in the direction of thinking about colonialism and music. And so I'll just share a, a story that I know Brian's heard before. So apologies, Brian, but um, which is that I, I was asked to work with a choir of hotel workers in downtown Toronto. And I came to rehearse with them. And most of the women in the choir, it was all women, were from the Caribbean. Um, and so I'm white and I, I felt, um, I, I was happy to work with them for the sort of, uh, eight weeks of my contract to celebrate the city's hotel workers day. Um, and then at the end of that, I really felt like I should leave to make room for what we called at the time, a woman of color to lead the choir. Cause I, I felt like I was taking the space of somebody who um, who should be leading the choir. And that, that was a sort of um, nascent uh, decolonizing move on my part. I was just, it just felt like the just thing to do. And the choir took one look at me and said, no, uh, you can't leave because we broke you in. And from that point on, I kind of uh, learned that really decolonizing for me was listening to the women in the choir listening to their cultural expressions, learning songs from them. So I was uh, affirming their cultural ways as part of what I can now name as a decolonizing process. I was, they were decolonizing me. And then in, and what I was doing was affirming that back to them. They, they, they wanted a proper choir leader and they wanted somebody to, um, they, they almost wanted to um, uh, uplift a sort of a vision of choir that was sort of what I would call Eurocentric, but, um, but I, I, I allowed them to do that. So, we, so it was this negotiation and this learning from each other that taught me about um, decolonizing. So, that, so that's, that's not really an answer about colonizing except the flip side and the, and the need to affirm other ways of, knowing and other ways of singing and, and also other ways of worshiping. 
Yeah, thanks, Becca. I mean, that's a great story. And the way that you describe it in the book, which I've read, uh, is is so, you know, you, you started talking about community. And I think the, the way that you kind of tell that story and the way that it ends in community uh, is so important. And it's important to that stance that we're talking about. In a sense, you're not you're not arguing, you're bickering, you're fighting just for the sake of creating division. You're taking a stance that has kind of an ethical commitment to community. I mean, I'm talking about myself. I don't want to, you know, but it seems in, in your, in, in the book, that, that comes across so strongly, that commitment to community, um, that I, I think is really, really important. I, I, I'm a Brazilian stuck in Texas. That's the very short story. Uh, I, I'm a pastor's kid, grew up Lutheran, uh, playing in church. I got into church music almost by, what well, I mean, I, I couldn't not, right? You know, I remember being 13 and my dad was like, okay, you're going to play the hallelujah today. Uh, and it became one of those things like Becca described of living in different worlds, right? So I was living in the church music world, but also in the kind of professional concert music world, conducting choirs, orchestras, concerts, that kind of thing. And also living in the like 1 a.m. pub gig, you know, cover band world, which I also deeply appreciate. And these things started to come together, and I, I think they started to mess up my experience of what I consider church music to be at the time. Uh, I was in ministry for a long time, moved to the U.S. to get my Ph.D., and now I, I, I'm here at Southern Methodist University uh, directing the Master of Sacred Music program. So, in a sense, I in in... On the worst days, I see myself as living a kind of schizophrenic uh, life where, you know, sometimes privilege will put me in a position where I get to say what's going to happen. Sometimes I'm an outcast because I'm not American, uh, you know, and then the, how do I identify as a Brazilian or as Latinx or, as you know, and then sometimes English feels like it flows well. And there are some days when English just doesn't work. Uh, if I've spent most of the day working with Spanish speaking colleagues and then I go home and try to speak Portuguese and try to, it's like this big mess. Uh, but I've come to love this, this intersection because I think this intersection is a place that, that allows freedom and it also creates a certain kind of calling, which is to be, um, a multicultural liaison, if you will. So you, you, you know, it's just like church music, right? Which is, I always tell my students, it's the, the bastard child of music and theology, and they, they own it and disown it at their own interest. <laughs> um, the, the de my experience with, with coloniality and with a decolonial kind of stance has to do with my, uh, with my life experience. And, you know, in the process of living in these different worlds, coming to value, uh, community and coming to value relationships that in a sense recognize the deep flaws in, in our relationships, both individual and collective, but are also committed, committed to talking about them and uh, trying to create resiliency and renew them in ways that are uh, life-giving and, you know, move towards human flourishing in God's world. Yeah. So I think in a nutshell. Um, my my approach to this topic ha has been as someone learning about it and and part of it has been learning about it because it's literally my job to learn about it 
um, on behalf of the organization I work for. Um, and, and before I arrived at even understanding what this topic meant or was, I was tasked with and was working on understanding more about race relations within the United States, specifically racism against black people. Um, but also, uh, the, our history of uh, the relationships or lack thereof with native Americans in America or in the, in the U S. And so then I came to this concept and I mean, and, and like Becca said earlier, I mean, all these things, and maybe this is before we were recording, I can't remember, but all these things are interrelated and have similarities, but also distinct differences and, and particularities. Um, so I've, I've been enjoying seeing those, those overlaps and those similarities and, um, and then, and then it's hard to, to not see the similarities, <laughs> you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is happening there too. Oh my gosh. And, and so, um, for me, it's just been this kind of constant revelation of, whoa, that's related to this and this concept works. And, and so that's, um, that's kind of where I am and how, I, how I approach this topic. Um, as someone who grew up in the church, I grew up Presbyterian. Um, and you know, we had like world mission day, like a world mission conference where, you know, we brought in the speakers, but then we went, we went about our normal worship, you know, we like the, and I remember being a high schooler and saying to my mom, like, Hey, why don't we ever use the stuff like the world mission conference is so much fun. And like the songs we sing are great and all this stuff. Why don't we ever do that stuff the rest of the year? And she's, and she was just like, well, I don't know. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was just like those two things never met. And so now I've, I've found a lot of, um, just being able to reflect on my own history of being in a white church in South Georgia and and then listening to people who talk about these topics like Becca and Marcel and, and thinking like, oh, oh, they're talking about they're talking about me and like how I grew up and what shaped me. And then I started thinking, oh, well, how did that shape me? Is that <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of where I am with the topic and how I've been approaching it. Well, so how would you describe uh, how coloniality has indeed affected uh, Christian worship. Becca, can I start? Because I think I have a perfect antidote. Anecdote for Last Sunday was World Communion Sunday. There you, I mean, there you have it, right? Um, I was I was invited to lead at a church in the area, and I started the liturgy by saying, "Welcome. This is the Sunday where we do all the stuff where we don't that we don't see the rest of the year because somehow it doesn't seem appropriate." Um, and that's one of the ways in which, you know, in the liturgy writ large and in church music specifically, um, this idea of an other that is not us and that gets incorporated in very protected uh, or triangulated ways into, into how we think about worship uh, and the centrality of certain narratives and certain repertoires, it, it's deeply built and, and it's really hard to get to the level where we see these these mechanics playing out, right? So uh, World Communion, on the one hand, might be great because it's a celebration. It's an opportunity for you to, you know, get your congregation to engage with the song 
with a type of song that they wouldn't otherwise. Right? You're not, if you start singing in Swahili with, on any given Sunday without any kind of context or explanation, you're going to get those angry emails the next day. It's going to happen, right? But on the other hand, there's a process of what in musicology we would call exoticization, right? Where it's like you're, you're imagining this exotic other that you bring in for this special Sunday, and then you celebrate them and you put them away until next year. Uh, so you're not really engaging, you're, you're not dialoguing, you're not creating community, you're celebrating your own ability to uh, do this once a year. And I know that hurts, but that's a great example. Another great example, you know, I talked to Michael Hahn a lot about this. Um, he was my predecessor here at SMU. And, you know, it, it's weird to say this in, out loud in public, but uh, when I stepped into this position, part of what what, what I was I had an open question, which is, you know, knowing Michael and everything he did uh, and everything that generation did to kind of advocate for global song and create more space for these repertoires, what, what is the next step, right? Because if you stop there, then global song categories and hymnals become almost like guilt categories, where it's like, here we have it, you know, it's in our hymnal, so, you, you know, we're, we're good, we're free from litigation. But how do you continue that that journey into a place where uh, cultural flexibility or um, hospitality is part of your stance? It's more than just a good intention that you're willing to um, and uh, to act upon once or twice a year, like at a missions conference on World Communion Sunday. Uh, and then the rest of the time, we kind of revert to the implicit understanding that our SATB stanzaic hymns are, in fact, the soundtrack of heaven, uh, when that doesn't make any sense at all. Um, yeah, I'm going to stop there and get off my soap my soapbox. Becca, please save me. I'll try. <laughs> I like your soapbox, though. So um, I'm with you. You're converting me. Uh, and... Um, Actually, seriously, I think it has to do with conversion. Uh, it's about being converted to another way. Um, and I, I've, I've, I'm so uh, stimulated by this conversation. I want to dive back into what, um, Marcel, you were saying previously, just to say that, uh, that I think that... Um, so let me start by saying that I think that church, that coloniality has shaped church music in a number of ways. And basically... If you start to go down the track that, as Brian was saying, of thinking about colonialism and thinking about um, how can we decolonize, you end up seeing it everywhere. And, and you do become a bit of, a, of an evangelist for, for, uh, for decoloniality. Um, and, and you start to see that what we sing, how we sing, who sings, uh, the way that, that, you know, what instruments we use in church, all of those things are impacted by um, the vestiges of colonialism. And it can be, uh, I know Marcel has um, written really well about getting away from the language of hymns because it limits us to that kind of strophic verse, four-part harmony thing. Um, so, but, but even in our hymns, if we go to that body of work, it's in the text themselves right like the texts um, uh, evoke a theology of empire in many cases so 
So, and the, and so does the music, some of our, our most beloved hymns. And that doesn't mean we should throw them out, but it means that we do need to, I think, interrogate them and look at what's going on and how that is shaping us as Christians. And th then we also need to make space for the, the traditions that have been left out, not just on World Communion Sunday, but every Sunday, right? And we need to look around us and see who's in our community and who can be invited in to help us with that leadership so that it's not us leading a music, somebody else's music, but, but leading, leading or co-leading um, music and enriching our, our community's understanding of the context from which the music came. So there's, there, all of that is at play. And I think if we take it seriously and move, I would say even move beyond hospitality. So move beyond us being the guest there or inviting somebody in even though I just kind of said that, but we, we want to actually reconfigure our communities so that we're all in it together. And um, so that we are fundamentally changing who we are and how we see the world, what we sing. And, you know, so that those angry emails don't come anymore. And people say, wow, I'm so glad we sang in Swahili, you know, because we sang in Swahili, four Sundays in a row, I met my Swahili neighbor and now we're having dinner together, you know, like it's like, so it's about relationships and, and the, the stance that you talked about Marcel and your own experience of, of, and of being at different intersections is, is I think key. Um, and I think we come at that call to be intercultural um, differently depending on who we are. So in my case, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian and I'm of European descent. And so I'm white and, and I have the privilege to enter that, to, to answer that call or not. And other people who are racialized or who speak with an accent don't have that privilege. They have to engage interculturally all the time. And so I think there's a, so kind of adopting a decolonial stance allows me to uh, be in relationship with uh, a variety of other people from different cultural traditions um, and it enriches my life and it also uh, deeply challenges me so I, I I'm uncomfortable on a weekly basis um, and I think that's an important part of, of uh, the work of what we would call here in Canada reconciliation and and um, really engage it. Wow, I went way all over the place there, <laughs> kind of deviated from church music. But I think it, it all actually happens in what we sing and through our engagements with each other. It, that's, that's my, my, my life experience has been that we, that, um, that I can be converted and that, 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 that we can have a human experience of sort of mutual and radical hospitality where we are both guests and hosts enriching each other um a, a couple of very tangible ways i think it has affected what we sing is it, like like becca said you mentioned the uh the instruments that we use right it, it is it is written into roman catholic doctrine that the organ the pipe organ has place of ha, has primary place of importance um why because the Roman Catholic Church was born out of Italy and that's the instrument that they use. And so when they started spreading Roman Catholicism across the world, they said, this is the most important instrument. 
and and it's still there. I mean, that wording is still there. I mean, they you know, Vatican II did a lot to kind of change some things, like using the vernacular, but still, you it is in their ethos that Latin is the most important language of the church. Why? Which is because it was this European language that was sent around the world and people were forced to do it if they're going to be Roman Catholic for hundreds of years and the organ. So that's like a very specific example. I'm not trying to crap on Roman Catholics, but um, they, they still do represent the majority of Christians around the world. So that's a huge deal. Um, and, and the other is, uh, some really interesting conversations that I've gotten to listen in on um, from from Asian Christians uh, and s- specifically Southeast Asian and uh, Korean Asians and and Japanese. Um, there's this there's this struggle happening, and I assume this is happening in other places, but I, I'm specifically thinking of my Asian uh, siblings, where they're like, okay we grew up singing these songs from Europe because that's what the missionaries brought. And we love those, those songs and hymns and they are who we are. But we also, but then there's this kind of acknowledgement that, Oh, we should be singing our own songs, but because of the colonial legacy that they've inherited, they haven't been allowed whether implicitly or explicitly to do their own songs or even write their own songs. So there's not a lot in a lot of places, there's not a corpus of song that's been written, you know, or if, and so there's this struggle of how do we unpack that? How do, what do we sing? And is it okay to sing the song of the colonizer because it is our song? And, but then, you know, it's fascinating to watch this kind of, unpack itself in various places and it's happening right now or or it's not even it's just begun or it hasn't even begun in some places because that's how deep this goes um and and is ongoing so i'm that's a that's a hopeful word and the last thing i'll say is if you do world communion sunday and you're like crap we better stop doing world communion sunday i don't think that's the right way forward. I think the question you should be at, and I'm not saying that you suggested that Marcel, but I, I do as a, as someone that serves white churches, that's the instinct, right? Like, Oh, Oh, we just shouldn't do it because then we might, we might be doing something wrong. And then they just stop doing everything. Um, let's just do the things where we know that we're okay doing as white people. Um, but rather if you want to move into this kind of de- decolonial mindset and work towards that, um, build relationships, right? So does your World Communion Sunday lead to a book study or hiring a person of color from a certain culture to come and teach you and be a part of, of your community for a while? Um, does it does it lead to that next step? Because if not, that's where problems very quickly start to happen. But if it leads you into that community building, then then it's done a good job of being a mechanism for what what we're talking about and, today. and let me just emphasize that i didn't i didn't want to imply that you shouldn't do world communion sunday so much so that i, I was leading um, in that context but uh, i i do i, I deeply appreciate uh, becca and brian the the hope with which you you speak of of this process i think i tend you know there's part of what we need to do that is very hard and 
it has to do with resentment and bitterness and analyzing these these you know patterns of exploration and domination and but that you know that critical process at least in my experience should go along with a with a song of hope right in, in the sense that if if this is done in a generative way as becca mentioned you are you're not closing off you're opening up you know so it's not about bashing and it's not it's not about going back to the iconoclast sort of let's burn the organs that's not what i'm you know i'm a composer i write music for organ all the time and i, I direct choirs i love that yeah, i love the organ too right but, but on the other hand when you step into this this kind of space where you're uncomfortable all the time as becca mentioned then i think you're 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 stepping into this whole new world of possibilities uh that the colonial kind of curtain has has not made available to us in 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 recent history so you, you kind of pull back the curtain you're like oh there are all these people i remember leading a service i do a lot of work with uh, multicultural or multilingual worship you know two languages three languages whatever and i put together a service where i didn't translate everything and i just left everything in its original language and um, i had someone come up to me after the service and say you know that was wonderful i just wish we had the English translation, so we knew what we were singing about. And I said, well, that's pretty much how everyone else feels all the time. Uh, so embrace the awkwardness as part of the worship experience. Uh, and let's all just be awkward together. You know, hallelujah. Can I jump in here, David, before you ask your next? This is like getting just, it's just such a good conversation. Um I, I mean, I, I totally uh, uh, appreciate what you're saying, Marcel. I, I also worked with um, Spanish-speaking and English-speaking congregations in, in Toronto, and, and there was the same kind of resistance from the English-speaking people, and we never really got to the point of, like, I would have loved to have had a community conversation about what does that feel like, and what is it like for, the, for people who don't speak English or French in certain parts of Canada um, all the, all the time? right? Like, um, they have to live with that constant work of translating, uh, culturally translating and linguistically translating. I, um, I, I just wanted to pick up on a question that you asked, how do we do it? What is the next step? And, and to sort of say that I think we're starting to edge at what that ne next step looks like. Um, and to say that I think it goes beyond um, sort of tokenism and exoticism, the tokenism and, and exoticism that you talked about. And I would suggest that it, 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 it actually means that we take our music and our singing uh, seriously from a theological point of view, which is something which is a little bit of a, um, a reversal of how many of us have been schooled. Like music has, is to serve the word, Right. And what, what I think is that music actually is the word and it, and it is primary theology to borrow from Aidan Kavanaugh and um, that it shapes who we are. It allows us to express who we are as Christians. And so we ought to take it seriously. We ought to have, you know, certain, instead of a Bible study, a hymn study, what is the theology here expressing or what does it feel like when, when we sing a corito instead of a strophic hymn and 
what what does that tell us about who we are so that's one idea about how we can sort of move things forward um having to do with taking music seriously and i just also want to come back to this question of hope um to say out loud that i don't always feel hope like this work is hard and and our world is messed up i would use another word in other contexts but um i and so we enter into this conversation um and we have to confront a lot of pain because this is a conversation about um cultural genocide actual genocide historically and the ongoing oppression of peoples who are racialized or, or discriminated against in other ways and all of that is kind of um organized around this thing that we call coloniality so if we choose to take a stance then we're not only going to be uncomfortable we might be sharing in this hurt and 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 um we might have moments where we don't feel hope but i think that that's what we're called to do especially for people who are what we call dominant culture or white we're being called to give something up and there's a grief in that um but we need to remember that the grief of giving something up meets the grief of people who have never had the chance to be in the center right so the people who have been left out um whose song we haven't sung those people grieve every day and so um this allows us to 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 enact um the call to love our neighbor as ourselves and to really give and also the canonic call if we want to be theological about it to give up um and to take on um another and uh make space well i think white congregations um as i mentioned in my uh, spoken intro uh the word repent uh involves that process of uh, recognizing the pain uh, that has been caused in other congregations and other peoples. Uh, and is a part of, in my mind, um, needing to, to do that work uh, of, of acknowledging the pain and, and, and allowing space for, for the vocalization of that. Uh, it was a hopeful part for me. It comes back from your uh, book uh, and the question that you asked at the beginning. Uh, how can the gospel uh, guide us toward a commitment as Christians to make space for the diversity of the Imago Dei embodied in the songs of fellow human beings? Um, talk about that. Well, I mean, in, in some ways, I think I was just kind of nudging us there by by quoting scripture i think that um for me and I, i'm going to give a shout out to two um two remarkable latino theologians who have influenced my thinking on this um one is otto maduro who talks about i'm going to use some big words here but epistemic humility which means a humility in terms of how we know and understand knowledge and approach knowledge so um it's kind of an openness to the these other ways of knowing and other ways of doing so in in church music that would be an openness to um 
to other songs, to, to sharing leadership, to um, other styles of worship. Um, and the other is my uh, friend Nestor Medina, who talks about um, uh, pneumatological cultural kenosis. So, but he goes to Paul um, and Paul's interpretation of, of the incarnation of, of God becoming Jesus by giving up. Um, that's what we mean by kenosis, by giving up God's divinity and becoming human. And so we can look at that as a way to um, give up some of ourselves, relinquish our privilege, and make space for other people's voices. Um, we need to listen. Uh, we need to um, allow ourselves to be converted to another way of doing things. So it, it, it means a fundamental, it, it's beyond repentance even. Like I think repentance is a great word and we need that as part of the process, but it's also about just, um, so sitting with repentance and lamentation and then thinking about, well, what does that mean about who I am and in the world and what my leadership is in the church and how can I be converted? So how can I be converted to, to another, to another culture, to another person, to a different kind of relationship, to a decolonial stance of song leadership? That idea of the decolonial stance of song leadership and all the other big words you, you use, which I think are super important, like super duper important. Sorry about that. I get excited and they come, they come flying out unbidden. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit, you know? <laughs> I never thought about that. Uh, I would say that uh, epistemologic humility is super duper important. It's like two very different ways of talking together. But uh, you know, when I when I do like clinics with congregations on this issue of because then there's there's the practical question is like I have to lead worship on Sunday. What should I like? What do I do with all this stuff? Uh, or with the like the sense of urgency or uh, however you want to describe that, you know, that, that, that conversion thing that, that Becca was talking about. I, and, and, and I'm, I'm trying to answer your question, David. Uh, I think it's a, the way I would describe it is rehearsing yourself into a new imagination of the Imago Dei. So one of the courses I teach is a course on theological aesthetics where we trace the history of the Christian imagine, imagination in the West, right? Uh, in other words, how do we, how do we, we have these, these things we say and these shared images like glory and light and, you know, in, in the history of Christianity, that is in fact a layering of, of century upon century of stained glass windows and architecture and hymns. And, uh, you know, as humans, we imagine when we theologize as much as we postulate or whatever, you know, what have you, um, that means that, for example, as a, as a Brazilian Lutheran, when when you say Imago Dei, that triggers in me a series of associations. Some of them have to do with my Lutheran culture in, uh, in Brazil. Some of them have to do with the music that I grew up listening to. Some, right? So, in in on the Euro Euro American or like the Atlantic uh, world, that might mean that when you, you someone's like okay we're made in god god's image so god must look like us when in fact we're called to imagine the opposite 
that so that I think that calling to epistemic uh, epistemological humility that that's the opportunity and it doesn't happen from one day to the next it doesn't it usually doesn't happen from one week to the next or from one month to the next uh the good thing about the church calendar and liturgy is that if we mess up this sunday we could try again next sunday if there was a the good news of liturgy the gospel of liturgy is that you can try again next week right um so that's why the service always yeah. starts with the Kyrie, so exactly. you can apologize for last yeah. week. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it takes uh, an embodied intention, uh, an intention that is woven into the liturgical, and I'm using liturgy here in that broad sense of, you know, we're all doing liturgy in some sense when we gather to worship, of, of rehearsing our way into that, that stance of radical hospitality that we've been talking about. Uh, tampering with new songs, feeling awkward, engaging with performance practices that you, you your congregation is absolutely not comfortable with. Sometimes it means asking for permission. Sometimes it probably means asking for forgiveness. Sometimes it might mean not asking for either. I'm going to stop there again before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> Ain't no trouble. No trouble here. You, it's okay. <laughs> Brian, can I jump in with a little t tiny comment? And then, um, Marcel, it's great. Like, I've, I've been following your work, and it's really nice to be having this conversation um, with you and with Brian and with David. Um, so I'm, I'm, like, a bit over overstimulated and wanting to jump in. Anyhow, I, 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 I appreciate what you said about the challenge of actually trying to do this bit by bit. And just two little comments. The love your neighbor as yourself also requires that you love yourself, right? And I think one of the things that I found, and this is a weird kind of byproduct of coloniality as well, those of us who are of European descent are in a sense, I, I, I'm, this is a risky thing to say, but kind of racialized as white. And it's this amorphous homogeneous category. And in fact, like I'm, I have a, Cheese myself, I'm you know have this Welsh background and Irish and British and and it's a complex story of my ancestors and how I got here, and there in order for me to love my neighbor, I also need to love myself and appreciate my own cultures, the different cultures that are in me, um, as well as the cultures of my neighbor. So there's there's a way in which we need to kind of forgive ourselves and, and work away at this. And, and, and Brian, when you talked about, you know, I know Sui Hong Lim talks about this a lot, that, that, that um, communities in, um, in Asia actually want to sing um, how great thou art or what a friend that we have in Jesus or whatever as their heart song. And it's not for me to come along and say, well, you can't do that. That's a European song. What are you doing? You know, it's for me to understand why and to learn how they translate the song and what they feel when they sing it. Right. So it's, so it doesn't mean throwing those hymns out. It's a, it's a, this kind of complex map of, of what decolonizing might mean. Okay. That was, I'm going to shut up now too. I, Brian was I was gonna just going to say I'm on the really practical level, as far as next steps is you better have like your backup plans or your structural support with your staff. Because, you know, the musician cannot do this alone. 
if you're listening to this podcast and you're a church musician or a worship leader in, in some way, and you start digging into this topic and you want to make change in your local congregation, you better make sure the pastor is on board and you better start those conversations with the people who can support you and be your partners. Otherwise, you know, you're just going to be up Creek. Uh, and I've seen that a lot and I feel really bad for those church musicians because there's a power dynamic there as well. You could even study the power dynamic of colonialities with how our churches are structured and who has the power to get people fired or hired. And, uh, there's some interesting conversations to be had there. Um, so, you know, maybe the, maybe the first step is as you start making changes in your worship service to also talk about this in staff meeting, you know, read a book together, hire a consultant to come in and teach you some things as a staff or as, with other congregational leaders, depending on, on how your, your church is structured and, and who the, the voices are that, that have taken up leadership. Um, that's just a, a shout out there. I, well, I think that's a, that's a good insight and, and kind of answers the question I was going to ask about how, uh, how leadership uh, plays a role in the process of decolonizing. Um, I'm also intrigued and, and, and won't, uh, cause we're beginning to come on our time for this episode. Um, Marcel, uh, you talked about, um, the shifts needed to enable practitioners to imagine, compose and perform the music of the other. Uh, and you've been kind of touching on that, uh, in our conversation. Uh, but uh, each of you develop that a little more. Yeah, I always get in trouble for this uh, because I always I'm I'm going to try to I'm going to try to 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 get there. There's Mantle Hood, ethnomusicologist, big time godfather of the discipline, talked about this thing called bimusicality. He said that um, ethnomusicologists couldn't be armchair academics. In other words, they, they, they couldn't simply sit and talk about the music of this other, that this that tribe and wherever it was that they were studying and uh, describe to their Western audience what, how the music... Fun no, they had... If they wanted to, to... If they wanted to live at that space, they needed to learn the instruments, the vocality. They needed, they needed to step into the music making, right? Into the dancing, into the, the sweatiness of the music making process. Uh, that's what Hood would have called bi-musicality. Uh, church music, and this is an argument I make in, in my own book, uh, church, church Music Through the Lens of Performance, uh, I say that church music is inherently messy. And if you don't believe me, go read Paul Westermeyer's What is a Hymn Heritage? That's in the Journal of the Hymn Society, 2008, uh, where he questions this idea that, oh, you know, we're not, we're, our hymnody is not Lutheran enough. Or it's, it's like, what do you mean? You know, there's no such thing as a as as purity in repertoire. The history of church music is inherently messy, thank God. But I think we have this tendency to categorize it, or we have a hymnal committee that categorizes it for us, or a YouTube algorithm or a Spotify algorithm that categorizes it for us, right? So first, moving from an, a passive to an active stance, as we've talked about, was like, okay, I want to engage with some of these things. Well, that means that you probably need some sort of musical um, some some sort of bi-musical bi path. 
And that might mean that you're going to engage in music practices that go beyond your confidence in, you know, or improvising from from the organ or in singing, you know, in four parts or in, you know, having everything notated on the page. Uh, maybe you want to start improvising a little bit. Maybe you want to bring someone in that will teach you, you know, uh, gospel performance practices, and you're going to find a way to incorporate them into what you already do. So we're not talking necessarily about uh, this radical about turn all the time. Uh, we're talking about, again, flourishing, opening. Um, that takes effort that I think church musicians a lot of times don't have. And when they, as Brian said, Frequently, when they do have the, the, the energy and the vision, they don't always have the institutional buy-in that allows them to experiment. Um, so, so I think that this stepping into the performance practice of the other is a commitment that you rehearse in conversation and in music making and in staff meetings and with your congregation and from the pulpit and in the weekly bulletin. So it's all these things kind of um, together. Um, here at SMU, in the in the MSM program, I tell my students, you know, my goal is to make you as awkward as possible for two years, and then you can go on and do that to the, whatever congregation hires you. Um, and, and there's a lot of of community building that happens in that process as we as we embark on these journeys together. Sometimes we have someone in the room who, who can help us, right? So uh, you know, someone who speaks Kosa or who speaks. Portuguese, or who's, you know, and they like, this is how it's done. Let's all try this together. Maybe that's the best definition I can give. Let's try this together. Uh, and that willingness then, I think, translates into into that that kind of culture that you develop. I don't know, Becca, you want to take this and and riff off of it? Sure. I mean, I I I I think I love the the language of messy. And I want to suggest that it's biblical. Um, so, and I'm, I want to bring us uh, to the, the Babel Pentecost duo and say that, you know, the, 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 the story of Babel has often been interpreted as God's rebuke. And I've heard people, um, uh, again, Nestor Medina, among others, talk about Babel as actually what God was doing was rebuking the drive to homogeneity and affirming diversity uh, as, a, as God's gift. So affirming culture and diversity as God's gift, which gets um, then reaffirmed in the story of Pentecost, right, with all the languages being present and this kind of vis and messy Right, it's messy. They thought, uh, are they drunk or are they just speaking in a bunch of languages at the same time? It's messy, and I think that so um, that's kind of a pretty tangential riff on what you were saying. Except that I think it affirms the messiness of the process and the challenge, but also the richness. Right, like it's um, to use a, a Spanish word, it's a fiesta. Right, are, are, where people are bringing all of their diversity together um, in this kind of uh, cacophonous um, song, uh, which is which metaphorically is in everything we do in worship and as a church. Like you said, it's in our preaching. It's in it's in all the different aspects of 
who we are and what we do as church. So it's a kind of embracing the divinely mandated messiness of of this kind of human divine relation. Well, we have come to the conclusion of our first episode on this subject. Uh, We have focused uh, on mostly what is going to happen internally within a congregation in the church. Uh, In our next episode, we're going to uh, look more uh, broadly uh, how this uh, takes us uh, beyond specific congregations, although it won't completely do so. Uh, But thank you for being with me. I look forward to our next episode. Uh, and, and for, uh, this is an incredible conversation and it's a deeply rich and I'm grateful for each of you, uh, the insights that you've brought. So thank you for being with me for this episode. Thanks David. Appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And you are listening to practicing gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project's Work Song album and is used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a non-profit organization If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.